Hello and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us online. For daily encouragement, events, service times, and more, check us out on social media. And now, this week's message. It's, um, it's Friday morning and I know that I have an email to write. And I don't want to write it. Like, I've been thinking about it. I've been praying about it. I've been chewing on it. These ideas have been swirling around in my head. But none of these ideas have yet made it through my fingertips into the keyboard and onto the computer. And so I'm thinking, I'm praying. I want to be precise. I want to be precise because I've, I've never seen this done well. Churches often have treated their ministries like businesses or corporations, right? Where somebody on the team, somebody who may be an employee of the church feels like they have to guard what the Lord is doing in their life, guard what he might be calling them to because they don't want to lose their job. They don't want anybody to to know that maybe maybe God is calling them elsewhere. But if we're called to be a family, it seems, if we're called to be a team, which is what Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If we're called to be under rowers, you guys remember that passage from a few weeks ago. If we're in the bottom decking of the ship and we're just rowing our way along, letting the Lord direct it, letting the Lord steer it, we're just busy about his work. If God calls somebody to change seats, they're still on the ship. They're still on the same team. And so we should celebrate that. If it's the same Father that we serve, if he's the one who's drawing us and changing our interest, if he's aspiring us to more, we should celebrate that. And I'm searching for these words. Some of you you may know that several years ago, the Lord put a calling on Pastor Megan's heart. Megan is our student pastor here at Seacoast. He put a calling on her heart to move towards counseling. She felt like the Lord had put that desire in her, and so she began pursuing that degree through online courses and lots of homework. Recently, while nearing the end of the academic portion of that pursuit, she began to pray about her required practicum. I had to look up what a practicum is. It's not something that normally I throw around in everyday speech. It's sort of like an internship. Like you apply all the knowledge that you've learned from the classroom in a real life setting where you document, you take notes, you describe, you observe. It takes a lot of time. And miraculously, as she has neared that portion of her journey, the Lord raised up for her a place here in town that said, we will pay you to do your practicum here. So she was getting her academic requirement met, and she was going to work for them part-time, and it enabled her to stay here at the church. But we knew the day was coming where the Lord would call her to serve there full-time. And so we began to brace for it, right? And the Lord went before her again, miraculously. They offered her a full-time position there at the counseling agent. We knew that this would happen, and so we celebrated. We, we cheered for her. We're so excited that the Lord is going before her in this way, that he's changed her interest, and that he's going before. He's making it so clear, and yet a part of us grieves. A part of us is sad. Because going there means she has to give up being on the team here, right? And so we started praying about how do we navigate this? How do we walk through this? Because I've never seen this done well. We should celebrate. 
The Lord is calling her, right? I've never understood this idea that like, okay, if you stop being on staff somewhere, you can't go there anymore. Like, I remember when Pastor Tim and I were talking about this transition, the Pastor Tim who planted the church, as he transitioned out of this role and I transitioned into it, he told me about a headhunter company that was like, okay, for like a year or two, you can't attend. You got to sit out. And I kind of went, that's nonsense, we're the bride of Christ. We, we are the bride of, we are different. We are family. We are not, that might make sense in a corporate setting. That might make sense in a business setting, but it should never make sense here. The bride of Christ, the church will always look different than the world. It should look different than the world. And I'm thinking about all of this. It's swirling around in my head. And I'm like, how do I put all this into words for an email? that you would receive this week about this transition that is taking place. And how do we know when to draw the line? Because there are times, right, when churches do need to draw a line and say, okay, that's not going to be allowed here anymore. Like, that's not going to go on here anymore. And I find myself wishing that there was a set of instructions that I could just open up and turn to to read about all of this. And... There is. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles this morning, we're going to be looking at this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he planted. A group of Jesus followers trying to live out their Christianity in the middle of an environment that didn't look anything like, um, like a church. They're trying to march to a different drum beat. They're trying to walk to a different, to a different drum. And, and Paul is telling them how to do this. The city of Corinth, we said, has a lot in common with us Today, this is a port city. It's a tropical town, a beach town, a place of anonymity. There was a saying in the first century world that what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. And the people there are trying to live like Jesus in the midst of this. So if you've got your Bibles, that's where we're looking today. The past several chapters, Paul has talked about unity, unity, unity. He'd go, some of you guys are following Apollos, some of you guys are following me, but all of us should be following Jesus. So he's talking about unity, and then he switches gears in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, where it sounds a little bit different. If you're watching us online, we want to say hello to you this morning. We want you to know we, uh, we are so glad that you've tuned in. It's July in Myrtle Beach, so a lot of people are traveling. We want to say a special greeting to Bonnie in Texas and uh, to Megan's mom who tunes in every week, Miss Kathy from, uh, from I want to say West Virginia, but it's not. It's Delaware, something like that. I don't know. They're all the same, right? Uh, she wa she's got a whole group of her friends that they all watch together, you know, so we're so excited that you have tuned in. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Somebody will bring you one. If it's your first Sunday with us, we like to put the addresses on the screen so that you can look it up for yourself, right? Uh, we want you to see the passages that we're teaching on. First Corinthians is easy to find. Look for the guys' names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you're going to go over two books, Acts, Romans, and then the very next one is a book called First Corinthians. We are five chapters in. This is a passage that frankly a lot of churches ignore. And as we go through it, you'll see why a lot of pastors would rather ignore it. They'd like to 
push this one to the side. It's a clear passage. It's not hard to understand. But though it's clear, it's essentially the flip side of all that unity that Paul has been talking about. There's a flip side to the unity. There is a time to draw lines, a time to say, nope, not getting away with that here, right? And part of the reason why this passage we're looking at today is so neglected is that it's politically incorrect. So if you're looking for something controversial, boy, you have come on the right Sunday. Chapter 5, verse 1. Paul writes, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Some of you guys are like, I've never been so interested to read the Bible, but that's in there. Like, you should read your Bible. And you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment. Hold on. Paul? You can't pass judgment. You can't judge someone. Right? I've already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So when you are assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old uh, bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Lord Jesus, as we unpack this passage, would you help us to understand strong words but important words. We pray against distraction. In your name we ask all this. Amen. This, uh, this passage is severely undertaught and neglected, primarily, like we said, because it's a bit politically incorrect. And it flies in the face of so many values that we're brought up in. So many values of our culture that we may even be unaware of. And so you almost have to point them out in order to see them. Greatest value in our culture, number one, if you're taking notes, is that no one has the right to judge you. Right? This is a value in our culture. Nobody has the right to judge you. Wouldn't you agree that this is a value? How dare you judge me? What I do is between me and God. You can't look in on that. There's no business of yours how I live. And this worldview impacts us as Christians because it's a worldview that we've grown up in. And if we're not careful, it begins to leak its way into the church. And so anytime that we kind of look at a behavior and go, okay, that's off limits or that's wrong or that's kind of, that, that, that's not something that we value, we're kind of looked at as a bigoted religious slob 
right? Or a narrow-minded little twerp, right? Because come on, even Jesus said, don't judge. You're not allowed to judge. And then uh, value number two that's kind of swimming out there in our culture is this idea that we have a right to privacy, a right to privacy. It flies in the face of, of how we live, this passage does, because we believe in this right that we have, this unalienable right. In fact, the Supreme Court discovered this in our Constitution a long time back. Once they discovered it and decided it was an inalienable right that we have, a right to privacy, it has crept through our entire culture um, and into the church. There's almost this belief in the American culture and even in the church that, that what we that what we do is between us and God and it's nobody else's business. What I do is no one else's business, no matter how good or how bad it is. It's my life and everything in my life is simply between me and God. And now, and now we come to a passage that says there's a time and a place to judge. And it's like, okay, I don't know what to do with that. Right? Paul says there's not a right to privacy within the family of God. We impact one another by our actions and our behaviors. And that right, though it may be a constitutional right, is not a spiritual right. And yet both of these concepts are so deeply ingrained in us that you watch. Even as I teach this right now, later today at some point you're going to feel like you don't have a right. You know, There's going to be that situation where you're like, you're not supposed to judge me. We get so angry. It's that deeply ingrained. But fortunately, this passage is just so clear that if we just look at it, it's really, it's really hard to get around it. Now, before we look at this passage, there's one other thing I want to explore. I want to point out that there are times in Scripture where fellowships like ours, churches like ours, are told to draw a line. Right? There's many times we're told to unite. In fact, most of this book so far, 1 Corinthians, is all about unity. But he does also point out there are times where we go, okay, we got to draw a line there. And primarily the two areas where this um, is, is noteworthy is when it comes to one thing called heresy. Heresy is false teaching. Anything that goes against the, the core teaching, the plain, crystal clear teaching of Scripture. If somebody starts teaching some wacky stuff, we as a church are supposed to go, yeah, we don't agree with that. Like that goes against the clear teaching of Scripture, right? We have to draw a line there. That's not what we teach. That's not what we believe. And, uh, and then the other is high-handed sin. High-handed, and when I say high-handed sin, what I'm referring to is sin that the Bible clearly defines. Black and white, no argument about it, just something that is just so straightforwardly, it's just black and white, crystal clear. And it's not struggling with that sin, it's deciding like, yeah, I'm not going to live that way. Like, this is who I am, you have to accept it. Right? That's the high-handed sin that we're talking about. The type of lifestyle that kind of goes, here's who I am. I'm not changing. I don't care what the Bible says. I'm living in defiance, open defiance of what the Bible says. I excuse and I defend my eyes. It's a blatant lifestyle of sin. But have you picked up so far, I'm choosing my words carefully, the, the other phrase that I keep using is crystal clear. And I think that's really important. Because when we're talking about high-handed sins or heresy, we're not talking about those gray areas in Scripture or those more esoteric things that only a few of us ever pick up on or understand. We're talking about things that are just very plain 
in black and white in Scripture. In fact, if, if you've still got your Bibles open, flip over one chapter to chapter 4. Around verse 6, the Apostle Paul explores this. He goes, Brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Don't go beyond what is written. Then you won't be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over and against the other. These guys were dividing up, Paul says, going, oh, some of us are following Paul. Some of us are following Apollos and all this other stuff. And Paul goes, learn from us the meaning of this saying. A saying, by the way, that is apparently so common, he assumed all Christians who read this letter already knew the saying. He goes, here's the saying, don't go beyond what's written. And I, gotta, I get to that and I go, I got to underline that in my Bible. Don't go beyond what's written. Today I'm using the phrase crystal clear, speaking the scripture here, but what I'm talking about is just being uh, true to what's written. He goes, don't, don't go beyond what's written, then you won't take pl- pride in one man's teaching over and against the other. You know, we do this today. Where we find teachers or, or denominations or books or radio shows that kind of dial down on a teaching that's not black and white. It's kind of a gray area and we're like, oh, I really like the way that he sees it, right? And we get in that camp or we get in this camp over here and we just start fighting with each other and we go, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And that's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about when he says high-handed sins, right? He's talking about those very plain areas where the Bible is just so black and white, it is crystal clear. So that's what we're talking about. And with all of this as a backdrop, we're going to drop back into the passage to kind of understand what Paul is saying about when we draw the line. Verse 1, he goes, it is actually reported. I love the word actually there. I mean, that kind of, that kind of, my son told me the other night, he's like, you're actually funny. <laughs> Which would be a compliment, except for that second word. It's like, you know, I, I, like, I don't know how, to, he goes, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans don't tolerate. He's like, even the pagans think this is weird, right? This is just weird stuff. I had a title in one of my commentaries, it, it said a strange, no, sorry, a sick sin and a strange response. I was like, that's a great summary for what's going on here. He goes, there's sexual immorality, and it's a kind that the pagans don't even tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Some guy is shacked up with his stepmother. Now, as if this is even necessary to point out, the Old Testament says repeatedly, this is wrong. Right? Most of you are like, I'm, I don't need to see those passages. Like, I, I kind of know that this is wrong. This is weird, right? The Bible calls it an abomination. Absolutely not, not gray. This is black and white. And Paul goes, even the extreme, immoral, sinful Roman pagans, as bizarre as they were in their sexual practices and behaviors and values, even they look at this and go, that's weird. Like, that's weird. Right, so this guy is shacked up with his stepmom, and notice their strange response to it. Verse 2, you are proud. I read that, and I go, man, does that, does that not describe the day and age we live in? Right, these people are going, man, look how progressive we are. Look at how accepting we are. Look at how loving we are. We would never say that that's wrong. We're so open-minded and accepting. I mean, they're not only putting up with it, but they're almost braggadocious about it. Like, yeah, we have all kinds of people here. Isn't it cool? Now, let me pause for a second. 
I am so glad that in our church, in this gathering, we have all kinds of people here. All ki- and we're welcoming to all kinds of people, right? We always want that to be the case. But the Apostle Paul seems to indicate here, and we'll see it again in just a minute, that there is a point when we cross the line and we declare ourselves a follower of Jesus. In this passage, he calls this person a brother or sister. He goes, man, you should pass judgment on this person because he has identified himself. He has tagged himself. I'm a follower of Jesus. And so as a follower of Jesus, all of a sudden when we indicate that this is who we are, this guy is a self-proclaimed, devout follower of Jesus, and Paul goes, okay, when that happens, there's a different set of standards. Like we have to hold each other accountable. Right? All of a sudden... We kind of go, okay, I, if I see this thing in your life, I have to ask you about it. And we're going to talk about how to do that. Paul goes in verse 2, shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship this man who has been doing this? And then in verses 3 through 5, he offers a response, which is this, tough love, tough love. He says, you know, we don't just go, oh, well, whatever, you know, we're just, we're glad you're here. You know, we're just, we're not judgmental, we're not, we're accepting. Paul goes, oh, hold on. The guy has indicated he's a believer, right? He's indicated he's a follower of Jesus. If you see this going on, you have to say something. And then verse 3, look at how he continues. And just think again of how this flies in the face of what's considered politically correct. He goes, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this just as if I was present. I just kind of... I read that, and I'm like, wow, those are strong words. He goes, I'm not there. I haven't investigated. I haven't talked to the dude, but I'm passing judgment even from here. You're like, that sounds hateful. And Paul's like, it's not hateful. The guy, the guy hasn't denied this. Like, he's very open about this, and God has already spoken on this issue. See, in our day and age, we go, well, I can't pass judgment on that. And Paul goes, I can <laughs> the Bible's very clear, and he's saying, he signed up for the rule, you know, he signed, he's living by this standard, and so I don't have to be, I have to say to him lovingly, like, you can't, that's not acceptable, that, that's not okay, and some of us, what we do, we hide behind that, we're like, who am I to say, and I kind of go, that's dangerous, because God said, and so what we're really saying is, well, who is God to say, and I don't know if I want to say that. The reason Paul is able to do this from such a distance without interviewing the guy is because he knows what God has said. And the guy is openly living this lifestyle. And Paul goes, uh, uh, I got to call you out on that. He goes, I've already made my decision. So here's what I want you to do. Verse 4, when you're assembled and I'm with you in spirit, the power of our Lord Jesus Christ is present. So hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. When I read that as a kid, I'm like, what's happening? Like, is Paul kind of going, hey, so, um, so we're going to ask a demon to come inhabit this guy, right? It's like, wow. Or like, I saw the thing in Raiders of the Lost Ark when they opened the box and they're not supposed to, it's like, you know, like I was like, what's happening? <laughs> what Paul is describing, he goes, man, when, when, when you come to Jesus, you've been taken out of the kingdom of this world. You may want to write in the margin of your Bible, 1 John 5, 19, which says that we know we are children of God. The whole world is under control, though, of the evil one. Colossians says that when you come to Christ, 
He takes you, he trans, I love this word, transfers you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He's moving you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And when someone in the kingdom of light is living with high-handed sin, a life of darkness, the apostle Paul is saying, let them go ahead and go back to the kingdom they came from. Let them move away from the protection of the church, the fellowship, the support, the put them back in the kingdom of the enemy. That's where they want to live. That's what they're saying. He says, just, just allow that to happen. They're saying they don't want to live under God's rule, so allow them to move away from God's rule. But notice, now, the reason that we do this It says, hand this man over to Satan. And in my Bible, I've circled the next two words. So that. So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. The purpose is not punishment. The purpose is restoration. The purpose is restoration, not punishment. What Paul is pointing out to us here is that it is never loving to overlook a self-destructive sin. It is never loving to overlook a self-destructive sin. It's never loving to overlook self-destructive behavior. And intervention is always the right thing to do when somebody is destroying themselves. That's what he's saying here. And he's saying, you gotta draw the line. You gotta ask this guy to stop. And if he won't stop, you just, you just kind of remove yourself from it so that he comes back so that he comes back to the Lord. The whole purpose of this is so that he will be broken and come back to the Lord. He goes on and explains his rationale on why this sin can't be ignored in verses six through eight. He goes, your boasting isn't good. You guys are so proud that you're tolerating this. He goes, don't you know that a little bit of yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? He goes, "Uh, this word for, for leaven and yeast in the Old Testament is all the time used to represent sin. Some of you guys who bake, you may know this. I don't bake, so I don't really know this so well. But a little bit of yeast, right, you drop it into the dough, and it's what makes the bread rise. And it just takes a little, it doesn't take much to contaminate, right? And Paul goes, the same is true in how we live. Tolerating sin is going to mess things up big time. Right? We think that we can we can do sin management. Sin management, though, is a myth. Some of us, we live and and we get tricked into thinking this way, like, okay, this one behavior in this one area of my life, as long as I keep it over here, it's not going to bleed out into the rest of my life. It's not going to affect anything else. I'm going to keep it tucked away and keep everybody protected from it. The Bible indicates over and over and over again that is simply not possible. We have to be ruthless with our own sin because a little bit of sin messes up everything. That's the story of the Bible. You guys may know this. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything. In Genesis 3, you have the first act of sin. You remember the first act of sin? It was a pretty, pretty small one, if you want to know the truth about it. Like, it's the act of disobedience. God goes, don't eat that, and they ate it. Small sin. By Genesis 4, murder. <laughs> one chapter. One chapter between 3 and 4. Disobedience, murder. You remember what happened in Genesis chapter 5? The flood. Like, there's such worldwide sin that God goes, oh, I just gotta, I gotta start over, right? Sin never can be just concealed. It can never be kind of quartered off, right? It always makes things worse. It always corrupts entirely. In chapter three, disobedience, four, murder, five, flood. Like, that's how 
sin works, it always takes us further than we're willing or wanting to go. We think we can keep it concealed. And the same is true. Paul goes, don't you know that a little bit of like yeast, it messes everything up. You can't control it. You can't contain it. It's going to take over everything. And in our individualized world, that sounds like nonsense. It's hard for us to understand the principle in Scripture that my sins affect the people around me. You know what this means? It means mom and dad, if you've got that sin in your life that you're trying to just keep away from everybody else and kind of go, well, I don't want to talk about this. I don't, want to, I don't want to try to fix this. It's not affecting anybody. The Bible says it will affect the people around you. It will affect your family. I don't know how. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But it will. It affects the people around us. There's this principle that in the unseen realm, sin impacts everyone. So if we're struggling with a secret closet sin, it's going to impact in some way our kids, our families, our church. And understanding this principle has put the fear of God into me in my own life. I've told you before, like, I don't ever want to be a different person up here than I am at home. Right? That gap between the two, I'm like, if I start tolerating my own sin at home, I mean, not only can it affect my kids, it can affect the ministry. Like, there's all these things that it affects. It's, it contaminates everything. It's a cancer. The thing about cancer, have you ever noticed when people get diagnosed with that, they don't rejoice that they had a certain kind over another, right? I've never seen anybody go, oh, I'm so glad I, oh, high five, I got lung cancer. At least it's not kidney cancer. You know, like, they never get excited about that. Cancer is cancer. If you have cancer, you, gotta, you got something you got to deal with. Paul goes, sin's the same way. If there's sin in your midst, you gotta deal with it because it can ruin the whole thing because in the unseen realm, there's a huge impact. Paul goes, we are the body of Christ. We're the temple. We're connected. What I do impacts you. What you do impacts the people around you. What you do impacts me and one another. And we can see why this unseen principle has put the, God, the fear of God uh, in us. And it needs to be in us. We need to be. The, the goal of this passage is that we'll look in the mirror. That, and that's so important to say. It's not so that, okay, now I better understand how to use binoculars at the people around me, right? The Bible was given to us not to be a set of binoculars, but to be a mirror so that we'll look at ourselves and go, okay, what sin in my own life am I tolerating? Because that sin has the ability to corrupt everything. And that's where we start from. The, the goal of this passage is to start there in our own life and then the people around us and then the world. He goes on, verse 9, I wrote to you in my previous letter, which is funny because this is 1 Corinthians, which means somebody lost the previous letter. I wrote to you in my previous letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you so that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer or drunker or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. And then verse 12, look at this. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Most, uh, many of us, historically, we've really enjoyed judging those outside the church. Don't we? We don't put enough attention on judging each other, which is what he's saying we should do. We instead look over the fence and go, man, this world is crazy, right? They don't live to our standards. We start boycotting stuff because they're, you know, they're not living by our rules. And it's like, whoa, they didn't sign up for our rules. We did. 
He goes, man, I wasn't telling you like to, to, to not associate with non-Christians. Like you'd have to leave the world. We constantly today, if we're honest, we judge non-Christians by Christian standards. We ignore the, the sins of self-proclaimed Christians. We go, oh, well, you know, at least they're here. But then we look over there and we're like, those people though, you know. And Paul goes, are, are you, are you, what business is it of ours to judge them? That's what he says here in this passage. The answer to that rhetorical question is we have no right. Paul says, God will judge them. Right? Leave that. That's God's prerogative. You stay out of it. The pattern of judgment in, in, in our lives that he's unpacking here, the pattern of judgment is always to be myself mirror. Myself, then the body, and then to observe the world, but let God judge the world. You use this book as a mirror. And when you see some, another self, a brother or sister, because he says that when you see a brother or sister falling into something, you kind of go, hey, I've just noticed, but after first examining yourself. That's the, that's the method of how we're to live this thing out as a community, which is why we've been studying this book. We're kind of going, how do I live this thing out? So how do you apply this to your life? How do I apply this to my life? And I jotted down six quick applications. There may be more. These are six that I see. You might want to jot them down. Um, number one, never judge non-Christians by Christian standards. That's just one of the things I see in this passage. No matter how much popular American Christianity does it, I mean, and, and you, can find, you can find teachers, you can find radio shows, you can find all these things where we're trying to judge non-Christians by Christian standards. Don't follow the herd, though. Follow the scriptures. Don't follow the herd, follow the scriptures. Don't judge non-Christians by Christian standards. Their sin is sin, but God says, I'll deal with that. You focus on you. Second, our job is to infiltrate, not isolate. I, lo I love this one. Don't forget that your primary job is to infiltrate the world, not isolate from it. Paul says, I didn't mean for you guys to avoid all the people in the world. You'd have to leave the world in order to do that. Your primary job is to infiltrate, not isolate. If you want a biblical example of how we should live, those of you who have been around the Bible a little bit, Pharisees are not the best example. You may know that. These Pharisees, the ones that Jesus was all the time contending with, they were master isolators. In fact, the reason they got so ticked off with Jesus all the time is because he was a master infiltrator. While they were running around going, oh, this woman is a prostitute, this guy's a tax collector, right? This guy is a, is a commie who's coordinating with the Roman government. Jesus would instead go up to people and go, hey, you want to come to my party? We have really good wine. And when we run out, I make more. And these Pharisees would get furious. Some of you may remember when the Christian thing to do, I remember some of my childhood, the Christian thing to do when, when an organization made a decision that you didn't like, we would try to organize Christians into boycotting that organization. You guys remember that? And I kind of go, oh, I don't know if that's the approach. You know, or some organization makes changes to its health benefits or the way they treat the gay community or whatever it might be. And we protest, we boycott, we don't go to Disneyland, we don't go here, we don't go there. And guys, you have every right to choose what you spend your money on, but I think when we try to organize and boycott, I go, man, 
we shouldn't try to isolate from the world. That's not what Paul, he goes, you should infiltrate the world. If somebody, if you want to change the media, the way to change media is not to turn off your TV, but it's by getting into the media and bringing your values and God into the media. You want to change politics? You don't, you don't change politics by removing yourself from politics, right? You change politics by getting into it and bringing those values and things with you. The way the early Christians changed Rome was not by all getting into a bunch of boats and sailing away from Rome, right? They went into Rome and tried to change it from the inside out. We've never been called to boycott. We've been called, called to infiltrate. You've got a class at school that's teaching ungodly things? Take it kill it, like make great grades at it, and then when you go back and go, yeah, all that stuff is nonsense, then you've earned the right to be heard, right? Don't just remove yourself from it, infiltrate. That's how we change the world that we live in. Third, third principle, stick to the list. <laughs> There's a list of things that Paul says here that like, okay, this is what you stay away from. Don't add stuff to the list, there's a lot of things that are not on that list. We like to add all sorts of gray areas, don't we? Paul goes, man, just stick to this list. The clear teaching of Scripture. Do not go beyond chapter 4, what is written. Fourth principle, church discipline applies to those in the church, not to your family. And I say this because I'm all the time being asked by people who maybe you have a family member who's running from God or making some bad decisions and you're like, there's this family gathering coming up or a wedding or a birthday or whatever it might be. And you're like, are we allowed to go? It's like, yes, you should go. You should go. You don't isolate from that person. You go and love. Like when you join a, a Christian community, you're making a decision about that. But we don't, we don't get to make decisions about the families that we're born into, good, bad, or ugly, right? And when we, if, if you want to really um, see somebody redeemed or set, you don't cut them off, right? You, you stay connected to them in hopes that when that shipwreck happens in their own life, that you've earned the right to be heard, that you're the one they call when things go south. When your family, when your earthly family, like when the, these types of issues come up, you should stay close to your earthly family. Very important. I know it's a very specific one, but it's one that comes up a lot. Fifth, remember the purpose of this is always restoration, not punishment. It is always restoration, not punishment. It's so that when we see people in our lives who are living a way that doesn't, doesn't match what they profess, we want to stop enabling that. It's to step in and make sure that I'm not overlooking self-destructive behavior because I love you. I love you and I don't want you to be entering into self-destructive behavior. And so after I've examined to make sure I don't have any self-destructive behavior, I'm then entering into you and, and kind of trying to help you. Like, okay, I don't want to see you destroy yourself because I love you. And I love you enough even to risk you being mad at me. And then lastly... The circle of discipline should equal the circle of relationship. The circle, and this is something that we see here in this passage. It's, it, it's why we don't parade people up here and confess to you their sins, right? Like, because that, I mean, how is that helpful? 
If there's a sin like in a, in a close-knit group of people, then that's, that's where you deal with it. It's in those concentric, Matthew 18, Jesus talks about concentric circles rippling out from the middle. You don't, inv- like you, don't, you don't put things out there for people just for voyeurism. It's for restoration because my purpose is restoration. So we deal with it in the circle of the relationship because we are one. We are family. That's how we follow Jesus in the middle of our culture. That's how we live this thing out. So it's Friday morning and I have an email to write about how Megan is leaving her role, but not the family. No, no, no high-handed sin, I don't think. <laughs> I asked her last service, I was like, right? No, she's like, no, I don't think so. She's simply changing seats on the boat. And she's been an effective, gifted, caring, talented leader here for so many people. And we are so thankful to get to see what the Lord is doing in her life. And we celebrate and we want to do it right. We don't want to make her have to conceal that or hide it, right? It's like we want to, we want to celebrate you going into this next chapter Many, many of you may know that Luke Nichols has been serving alongside Megan in our student ministry. Although, after a moment ago, I'm like, maybe he should just be the announcement guy. Like, cause... <laughs> Luke was added to our team well over a year ago as the Seacoast Vineyard student associate because Megan hired him. He then began an intensive internship process under Jay Elkins, a program scheduled to end at the beginning of August, around the time that Megan would be vacating her role. He's an exceptional young man, gifted, humble, brilliant. He loves the Word of God. He loves people. He loves Jesus. What an amazing young man the Lord brought in and prepared for this new season, even when we didn't know that's what he was doing. The timing on all of it. Oswald Chambers once said that you can never see sovereignty going forward. You can only see it in the rear view. Then I look at our rear view and I see how God was moving all the things around. And he's going to take care of Megan. He's rolling out the red carpet for her to move towards what the Lord has called her to. And so of course he's going to do the same thing for us and moving all the things. It looks like we did it on purpose, but we didn't. We're not that good. We look and we go... Man, that's amazing. So as of August 1st, Luke Nichols will be the new student pastor at Seacoast Vineyard Church, which is super cool. (laughs) Megan Townsend will be counseling people out in Conway, but will still be a part of our gathering, our church. It's going to be awesome to see. Uh, Two weeks from today, I think it's two weeks, um, On July 31, we are going to celebrate Megan in here. We're going to pray over her. We're going to have an amazing time to watch as we cheer her on the same way she's cheered Luke on. It's going to be amazing. We see beautiful, amazing things ahead for Megan, for Luke, for the student ministry. God is clearly leading even when we're unaware of it. Because he is good. We are celebrating and I kind of, again, I, I dial down on this passage. I tell you guys this every week. The stuff that I'm kind of confronting in my, the issues that I walk through with on a daily basis, I keep coming back to the word of God and going, okay, God, tell me how to do this. 
And with this, with this most recent stuff, it's like, all right, there's no high-handed sin, no heresy. We are celebrating someone. And boy, if you do that right, this ship can stay on course. We keep moving towards what God's called us to. The whole golden thread through this passage today, as I summarize, as we wind down, the whole golden thread through this whole chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians is that sin is a big deal. It's a big deal in the unseen realm. And I hope, I pray, I pray that we don't just walk away today with a better understanding of how to deal with one another. Those binoculars that we look at the sins in other people's lives. The key point of 1 Corinthians 5 is to help us see the impact of our own sin. That we hold this book up as a mirror and look at the sin in our own lives and take it seriously. So what Paul says here is that just a little bit of leaven, a little bit of yeast spreads throughout the whole loaf. We need to be a people who take our own sins, who never tolerate our own sin before we start looking at other people. And when we look at other people, we do it from a spirit of love and hopes of restoration. We infiltrate, not isolate. Father, would you take these things? Would you help us to be wise in our dealings with others? But also help us to be fearful, appropriately fearful of sin in our own lives. And we take it seriously. Spirit, would you use this moment right now in the quietness of this space to reveal to us any yeast, any leaven, any sin in our own lives that we've been underestimating? Would you expose it and give us the courage to deal with it right now? And then when we sing, may we be lighter because we're singing about that blood, that that washed that sin away, that price, Jesus, that you paid so that we could experience the life that Justin was just talking about. So Spirit, use this space. Search our hearts before we sing. again for joining us online. We hope you enjoyed the message. To connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. For more information about who we are, check out seacoastvineyard.com. We would love to hear from you, so make sure you leave us a review or drop us a message. Until next time, have a great day.